Good evening, this is Pamela, and you're listening to Watchmen on the Pot. We're going to pick up in Chapter 2 from our book reading, The Secret Terrorist, from Bill Hughes. We are in Chapter 2. President Andrew Jackson. President and uh, President Andrew Jackson was elected to the presidency in the year 1828. His bravery and military skill in defeating the British in the War of 1812 was well known. He fought many battles in open combat, but now he was facing an entirely different enemy. This enemy claimed to be an American, just like him claimed to want to know, want the best for America, just like him, and occupied high positions of responsibility, just like him. The Jesuits were going to destroy America as determined by the sinister councils of Vienna, Verona, and Cherie. And it was during the presidency of Andrew Jackson that they began to apply their treachery in full force. These Jesuits moved among the American people and looked just like Americans. They were, in fact, American citizens, but their loyalty was to the Pope of Rome. Their purposes were those of the papacy. These people were traitors and a serious threat to the continued existence of the United States. A nation can survive its fools and even the ambition, ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. An enemy at the gate is less formidable for he is known and carries his banners openly against the city. But the traitor moves among those within the gates freely. His sly whispers rustling through all the alleys, or rustling through all the alleys, heard in the very halls of the government itself. For the traitor appears no traitor. He speaks in the accents familiar to his victims, and he wears their face and their garments, and he appeals to the baseness that lies deep in the hearts of all men. He rots the soul of a nation. He works secretly and unknown in the night to undermine the pillars of a city. He infects the body, pol pol politic, so that it can no longer resist. Marcus Cicero, speaking to Caesar, Crassus, Pompey, and the Roman Senate. Two of these traitors were John C. Calhoun and Nicholas Biddle. Andrew Jackson won the presidency in 1828 by a very wide margin. His vice president was John C. Calhoun of South Carolina. Calhoun realized that the love for freedom was very strong in the hearts of all Americans. He realized that slavery was rapidly being hemmed in because nearly all the territories purchased from Spain and France were made free. Without a continual expansion of, of slavery, it would eventually be defeated. In order to derail the current anti-slavery trends in America, Calhoun began a newspaper in Washington called, hold on, it's flipping pages here, called the United States Telegraph. In this paper, he began to advocate the idea called states' rights. The doctrine of states' rights would lead inevitably to the complete abolishment of the United States. It presumed that a state had an inherent right to do whatever it wanted. Under the principles of the state rights, if a state wanted to secede from the Union, it could do so. This would eventually eliminate the United States. Calhoun took a festering sore 
and turned it into the reason for the southern states to secede from the Union. The festering sore was the more expensive since Europe bought brought large amounts of southern cotton and other commodities to the tariff meant that the southern merchants made less money for their exports. This tax helped northern manufacturers because now the southern merchants would buy more from him. Calhoun convinced the southern states that they were getting a very bad deal and that they had the right to leave the Union over this issue. The South, being an agricultural region was easily convinced that a high tariff on foreign imports was injurious to them. He next undertook to explain to the South that these high duties were placed on specific articles and was said to the people of the South, you are being taxed to support northern manufacturers. And it was on this popular issue he planted his nullification flag. This new bastard democracy meant the right to destroy peaceably or by force when ready in the Federal Union. John Smith died. The Adder's Den, page 22. Shortly after Calhoun started his paper, there was a meeting called to honor the memory of Thomas Jefferson. At this meeting, Andrew Jackson was asked to speak. He rose and declared, our federal union, it must be preserved. After saying this, Jackson sat down. Calhoun then arose and declared, the union next to our liberties most dear. May we all remember that it can only be preserved by respecting the rights of the states and distributing equally the benefits and burdens of the union. Calhoun put the Union second to our liberties. The Union and the Constitution are what established our liberties. If the Union were dissolved, the states would be at each other's throat, just like the countries of Europe down through the history. The resources of the states would be constantly used up, always preparing for war with each other. This was the objective of Calhoun and the papacy from the beginning. Their goal was to destroy the United States. Calhoun used the tariff to create friction between the North and the South. Congress could have easily changed the tariff, so that was no reason for secession. Many spoke out against his underhanded methods. Daniel Webster said, Sir, the world will scarcely believe that this whole controversy and all the desperate means which it supports requires has no other foundation than a difference of opinion between a majority of the people of South Carolina on the one side and a vast majority of the people on, in, of the United States on the other. The world will not credit the fact we who hear and see it can ourselves hardly yet believe it. Daniel Webster knew that the issue went far deeper than a tariff. Calhoun was the Jesuit plant being used to split America in two. John Quincy Adams in the House of Representatives declared, <clears throat> in opposition to the compromise of Mr. Clay, no victim is necessary, and yet you propose to bind us hand and foot to pour out our blood upon the altar, to appease the unnatural discontent of the South, a discontent having deeper root than a tariff, and will continue when it is forgotten. 
Hmm. Adams was correct in his observation. The tariff issue died, but the smoldering embers of division had split America in half. The blood of the Civil War can be traced back to the Jesuit John C. Calhoun. One minute. Okay, I'm sorry. My phone kept going off. Forgive me. Okay. As we watch Calhoun seek to rend America in two, let us remember the words of ex-Catholic priest Charles Chinaquai. Rome saw at once that the very existence of the United States was a formidable menace to her own life. From the very beginning, she perfidiously sowed the germs of division and hatred between the two great sections of this country and succeeded in dividing South from North on the burning questions of slavery. That division was her golden opportunity to crush one by the other and reign over the bloody ruins of both, a favored, long-standing policy. Charles Chinaquai, 50 Years in the Church of Rome, Chick Publishing, page 291. Calhoun was not a loyal citizen of the United States. He worked to advance the Pope's agenda. He seemed to be an American, but was really a Jesuit in the Pope's army in the effort to destroy America. Priest Filan, I think it's Filan, let's say Filan, makes this statement. Why, if the government of the United States were at war with the church, we would say tomorrow to hell with the government of the United States. And if the church and all the governments of the world were at war, we would say to hell with all the governments of the world. Why is it the Pope has such tremendous power? Why the Pope is the ruler of the world? All the emperors, all the kings, all the princes, all the presidents of the world are as these altar boys of mine. Priest Philon, past a Western watchman, June 27, 1912. John C. Calhoun was one of the papal altar boys doing as he was told. Andrew Jackson, in his message to Congress in 1832, stated this, the rights of the people of a single state to absolve themselves at will and without the consent of the other states from their most solemn obligations and hazard the liberties and happiness of millions compromising this nation cannot be acknowledged. Such authority is believed to be wholly repugnant both to the principal union which the general government in is constituted and the object which is expressly formed to obtain. John Smith Die, The Adder's Den, page 25. Jackson knew that Calhoun's plot was to, hold on. Jackson knew that Calhoun's plot was devised to destroy the United States and its constitutional liberties, and this was unacceptable to him. Jackson was standing in the way of the Congress of Vienna, Verona, and Charie, and the Jesuits had to deal with him. Nicholas Biddle, another one of their agents, carried out phase two of the Jesuit attack. Biddle was a brilliant financier. 
Having graduated from the University of Pennsylvania at the age of 13, he was a master of the science of money. By the time Jackson came to the presidency in 1828, Biddle was in full control of the federal government's central bank. This was not the first time that a central bank had been established. Twice before, first under Robert Morris and then under Alexander Hamilton, had a central bank been tried, but in both cases it had failed because of the fraudulent actions on the part of the bankers who were in control. After the War of 1812, a central bank was tried again, and it was in this third attempt that we find Mr. Biddle. Who was behind Nicholas Biddle and the attempt to have a central bank in the United States? The blunt reality is that the Rothschild banking dynasty in Europe was the dominant force, both financially and politically, in the formation of the Bank of the United States. G. Edward Griffin, the creature from Jekyll Island. American Opinion Publishing, page 331. Over the years since um, I think this is M.M., I'm not sure, Rothschild, the Manchester textile manufacturer had bought cotton from the southern states. The Rothschilds had developed heavy American commitments. Nathan had made loans to various states of the Union, had been for a time the official imperial banker for the U.S. government, and was a pledged supporter of the Bank of the United States. Derek Wilson, Rothschild, The Wealth and Power of a Dynasty, Charles Schreibner's Sons, P, uh, page 178. The Rothschilds long had a powerful influence in dictating American financial laws. The law records, records show that they were the power in the old bank of the United States. Gustus, let's see, Gustavus Myers, History of the American Fortunes, Random House, page 556. The instigators behind, the, behind Biddle in his efforts to establish the central bank were the Rothschilds, for whom was the Rothschild family working. Aware that the Rothschilds are an important Jewish family, I looked them up in the Encyclopedia Judaica and discovered that they bear the title Guardians of the Vatican Treasury. The appointment of Rothschild gave the Black Papacy absolute financial privacy and secrecy. Who, who would ever search a family of Orthodox Jews for the key to the wealth of the Roman Catholic Church? F. Tupper Saucy, Rulers of Evil, Harper Collins, page 160 and 161. The Rothschilds were Jesuits who used their Jewish background as a facade to cover their sinister activities. The Jesuits, working through Rothschild and Biddle, sought to gain control of the banking system of the United States. Andrew Jackson was not happy with the central bank. When Biddle sought to renew the bank's charter in 1832, President Jackson put his re-election bid on the line and vetoed Congress's attempt to renew the charter. He vetoed it for three reasons. The bank was becoming a monopoly, it was unconstitutional, and it was a grave, it was a grave danger to the country by having the bank heavily dominated by foreign interests. 
the Jesuits. Jackson felt that the very security of America was in danger from these foreign interests. He said, Is there no danger to our liberty and independence in a bank that in its nat nature has so little to bind it to our country? Is there no cause to tremble for the purity of our elections in peace and for the independence of our country in war, controlling our currency, receiving our public monies, and holding thousands of our citizens' independence? It would be more formidable and dangerous than the naval and military power of the enemy. Herman E. Cross, Documentary, History of Banking and Currency in the United States, Chelsea House, page 26 and 27. Jackson's comments were nothing new. Others understood the power wielded by those who ran the bank. Mayor Rothschild said, let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who writes the laws. G. Edward Griffith, the creature from Jekyll Island, American Opinion Publishing, page 218. This is the Jesuits Rothschild's golden rule. The one who has the gold makes the rules. Griffin then writes, the Rothschilds dynasty had conquered the world more thoroughly, more cunningly, and more, much more lastingly than all the Caesars before or, before or all the Hitlers after them. Thomas Jefferson had this to say about the central bank. A private central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army. We must not let our rules load us with perpetual debt. Hmm. The Jesuits used Biddle and Rothschild to gain the upper hand in American banking because they knew that they could then control the people and effectively rewrite the Constitution according to papal law. Jackson was trying to stop them. The Jesuits used Biddle and Rothschild to gain the upper hand in the American banking because they knew they could then control the people and effectively rewrite the Constitution according to papal law. Jackson was trying to stop them. Did I write? I just read that all over again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Funny. Let us take a closer look at the central bank and see why it is so dangerous. Most people do not understand the central bank. The Federal Reserve Bank, here is a very simplified scenario that pretty much explains one of the operations of the Federal Reserve. It is necessary to understand that the Federal Reserve Bank is not owned by the United States government, as many believe. The central bank, <clears throat> the richest and most powerful people in the world, oh, no, see, I jumped, the central bank, the Federal Reserve Bank is a private bank owned by some of the richest and most powerful people in the world. This bank has, which allows the operation, has nothing to do with, I'm sorry, it's like I'm not even looking to see in the lines or something. Forgive me. Let me start again. This bank has nothing to do with the U.S. government other than the connection which allows the operation described below. The Federal Reserve Bank has a total government-enforced monopoly in money. Before we had the central bank, each individual bank competed with other banks. The customers, the consumer, got the best deal. Not anymore. We all know that today the United States government borrows money and operates under astronomical debt. Why is this? 
Common sense dictates that a policy of such enormous debt will sooner or later destroy the organization that practices it because the interest on its debt must increase beyond its income, making payoff impossible. Now to our scenario. Here, roughly, is how the operation proceeds. Suppose the United States government wants to borrow a billion dollars. The government issues a bond for this amount, much as a water company does when it wants to raise money for a new pipeline or a new dam. The government delivers this bond for the billion dollars to the Federal Reserve Bank. The Federal Reserve Bank takes the bond and writes an order to the Department of Printing and Engraving to print the billion dollars worth of bills. After about two weeks or so when the bills are printed, the Department of Printing and Engraving ships the bills to the Federal Reserve Bank, which then writes a check for about $2,000 to pay for printing the billion dollars worth of bills. The, <clears throat> the Federal Reserve Bank then takes the billion dollars and lends the billion dollars to the United States government and the people of the country pay interest at an exorbitant rate each year on this money, which came out of nothing. The owners of the Federal Reserve Bank put up nothing for this money. We see, therefore, that when the United States government goes into debt, $1, a dollar plus the interest, goes into the pockets of the owners of the Federal Reserve Bank. This is the largest, the most colossal theft ever perpetuated in the history of mankind. And it is so slick, so subtle, and so obfuscated, I don't know how that is, by propaganda from the news media that the victims are not even aware of what is happening. You can see why the Jesuits want to keep this operation secret. Hmm. The Constitution of the United States gives to Congress the power to coin money. If Congress coined its own money as the Constitution directs, it would not have to pay the hundreds of billions of dollars of interest that it now pays each year to the bankers for the national debt for money that came out of nothing. Money coined by Congress would be debt free. Biddle responded to Jackson's refusing to allow him to reestablish the central bank by shrinking the nation's money supply. He did this by refusing to make loans. By so doing, he upended the economy and monkey, let's see, let's see, he upended the, the economy and, what does that say? Monkey disappeared? I don't know what that means. By so doing, he upended the economy and Oh, money disappeared. I'm sorry. I thought I said monkey. It was like, where did monkey come from? I'm sorry. Forgive me. It's money. Money disappeared. Unemployment ran high. Companies went bankrupt because they could not pay their loans. The nations went into a panic depression. Biddle felt he could force Jackson to keep the central bank. So confident was he that he publicly boasted that he had caused the economic woes in America. Due to his foolish bragging, others came out in defense of Jackson, and the central bank died. It died until its reestablishment in 1913. It was reestablished then by the same people, Jesuits of Rome, for the same purpose of bringing America to her knees and planting the temporal power of the Pope 
component of the Pope in America. The Jesuit scheming for a central bank in America was temporarily stopped during Andrew Jackson's presidency. He had opposed Calhoun's states' rights doctrine, and he stopped Biddle's attempt to continue the central bank. When other things fail, the Jesuit oath declares that it is commendable to murder someone who stands in their way. The president had earned the undying hatred of monetary scientists, both in America and abroad. The Jesuits were furious. It is not surprising, therefore, that on January 30th, 1835, an assassination attempt was made against him. Miraculously, both pistol of the assailant misfired, and Jackson was spared by a quirk of fate. It was the first such attempt to be made against the life of a president of the United States. The would-be assassin was Richard Lawrence, who either was truly insane or who pretended to be insane to escape harsh punishment. At any rate, Lawrence was found not guilty due to insanity. Later, he boasted to friends that he had been in touch with powerful people in Europe who had promised to protect him from punishment should he be caught. Imagine that. The Jesuit order was dead serious about taking over the United States. They infiltrated into government at the highest levels and used their agents in controlling the American banking system. They would also use assassination when necessary to destroy any opposition to their plans. Andrew Jackson was almost assassinated by a Jesuit plant who bragged of the powerful Europeans, the Jesuits, that would set him free in case he was caught. Other presidents came along who also incurred the undying wrath of Rome. Several have been assassinated and a few escaped certain death. The next chapter, which discusses the presidencies of William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, and James Buchanan, will fill in the details. Amazing, guys. Wow. I'm telling you what. God has really pieced all this together for us to understand. It's pretty heavy pretty, pretty heavy. You know, I was telling Nikki earlier that, you know, they have changed history. I don't know if you guys realize this for real or not, but they have changed our history and how they have done it is this internet, this information highway, we like to call it. But the thing is, a lot of it's false information. They are changing the past and uh, we don't know which way is up half the time anymore. And you know what? If you do not have the Holy Spirit of Almighty God, if you are not walking with the Lord, because it says in the Word of God, how can two walk together lest it be agreed? So if you're not walking in the Word of God, but you're claiming Christ Jesus, let me tell you what, you're going to be deceived. Because the Word says that, you know what? If it be possible, even the very elect, if it be possible. And you know why? The only reason it's not possible is because they're in the Word. You know, they read the word, they do the word, they're in communion with God, they're in fellowship with the Lord. You see what I'm saying? You've got to understand this. There's no halfway in, there's no halfway out. You know what? You live for the Lord completely 100% or you live for the devil completely 100%. Don't be riding on that fence because I'll tell you what, you make him sick. You make Jesus sick. He says, I'd rather you be cold or hot, but since you are lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be vomited 
violently out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. Come on now. Think about it, brothers and sisters. So, you know, I was thinking, and I was telling Nikki, I said, you know, it's like I almost can now understand how is it possible that if it be possible, even the very elect could be deceived? How? Because you got the Jesuit plants everywhere. You know, I, I have sat back and I have thought to myself, and this is before, you know, all of this started coming together. But when I come back to the Lord in 2017, I was absolutely mortified over the things that had happened in Christendom and the church and the religious channels and all this other stuff. I was stupefied. I could not believe it. And it was like, how is that even possible? How could so-and-so preach God and all this other stuff? But now they're doing that? What? Are you for real? You know why? Because they were never Christian to begin with. I don't care. They weren't. They were plants. They were Jesuit plants. Nobody could tell me any different. They were plants. They're working for the Pope. Plain and simple. Billy Graham working for the Pope. Franklin Graham working for the Pope. I'm telling you what. Catherine Kuhlman working for the Pope. Benny Hinn working for the Pope. These people working for the Pope. Paul and Jan Crouch working for the Pope. You can't tell me that John Hagee's not. What about Kenneth Copeland? They're all embracing Catholicism and saying that, you know, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all, we're all a family. No, we're not. No, we're not. No, we're not. They pray to Mary. They pray and have her intercede, supposedly. No, no, no. They use prayer beads. Come on now, brothers and sisters. You know what? You, you either, you, you cry out to Jesus. Jesus is our intercessor. Says he ever lived to make intercession for us. He is the mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ is not Mary. And it's not even the Mary that actually gave birth to Jesus. It's not. You guys know this. I pray to God with all of my heart. You know this. They're not really worshiping the real Virgin Mary, and she wasn't a virgin after she gave birth to Jesus Christ. She had other children afterward. She's not a perpetual virgin. No, she's not. She had children, for goodness sakes. There's James, and there's John, there's Joseph, I think his name was. Jude. Not John. It was James and Jude. That's right, because they're right there in the Bible. They're right there in the Bible, for goodness sakes. He even talks about them, and then he had sisters. I don't mean to go on a rampage or anything like that, but it's like... I can see now, I can understand it now. I mean, these people are in the pulpits. These people are on Christian television, for goodness sakes. And they're preaching Jesus, and you're thinking they're on fire. They're speaking in tongues. They're laying hands on people, and it seems like they're miraculous being healed. They're running around and all this other hoopla. It's hoopla. Do you read that going on in the Word of God? A lot of people says, no, but, you know, you better be careful what you say. Well, I do know that God says that I can prepare everything in the Word of God. If it's if it's in the Word of God, I can accept it. But if it's not, and you expect me to accept it, but I'm supposed to test everything, how can I test everything? If it's not in there, then it's not in there. And I'm to reject it. We are to adhere to what the word says search the scriptures don't just jump out you know half haversly you know what do they call it haphazardly and say things that you you're not even know of or anything like that but this is what i said years ago and i still say that i don't care you can get all mad at me if you want to but you know what i don't believe in being slain in the spirit not at all not at all will not have it i do not accept it at all people would be like well what about daniel what about john they felt yeah they did you know what they felt prostate on their face in submission. In submission. And that's not because somebody prayed for them. 
they were in the presence of God Almighty. <laughs> Let me tell you what, if you don't fall on your face, I, well, you'd have to. I'm sorry. There's no if answer, but it's about it. You get in the presence of God Almighty, you're going to be falling on your face. Because you know what? He's holy and you're not. Plain and simple. That's that's just all there is to it. He's righteous and you're not. Plain and simple. You know, he's God and you're not. Plain and simple. And, you know, no, I do not believe in being slain in the spirit. Do not. I've seen it. I witnessed it. I grew up in churches. I grew up in the church. That's what they did. They spoke in tongues. They got slain in the spirit. They ran around. They hooped and hollered. They would run around the church. They danced and all this other stuff. Hmm. Well, I do believe in dancing. I mean, if the Holy Spirit, you know, just all of a sudden, you know, she's dancing jig like King David, you do it because you're doing it for the glory of God, but you're not just doing it. And you know what? I don't think that happens very often, to be perfectly frank with you. I really seriously don't, but that's just my opinion on that. I'm just going to keep it there. But then you got, you know, gold dust, feathers. What? Are you serious? Are you absolutely serious? That is ignorant. Anyone that believes foolishness like that is ignorant. They honestly don't know the word of God because if they knew the word of God, they would not accept it whatsoever. Would not, would not, would not. Or then, you know, you got Bibles, you know, bleeding oil, miraculous oil. Come on now. Is that in the word of God? That's foolishness. That's foolishness. Don't mess with me on that. Don't just don't even do it. Uh -uh. So anyway, I mean, like I said, I grew up in the church. I mean, in Pentecostal church, church of God, assemblies of God, whatever you want to call it. Charismatics, I, I don't know. And I do believe in speaking in tongues. You betcha, 100% with all of my heart. I do believe in it. Yes, I do. But I believe that's a private language between you and God. I do. And I do believe also that, you know, there can be a message brought forth, you know, in, in the assembly of believers. But if there's not an interpreter, you better be quiet. You better be quiet, you know. And then if there is an interpreter, there may be two or three elder men that's sitting back and judging that word to make sure it is from God. So, I mean, there's things that's going to order that should be done. But as far as, you know, uh, somebody praying for you and hitting you right there in the middle of your forehead, and you fall flat on the floor. What's that all about? What, what, what's, what's going on there? The only time that I have ever read in the word of God. Um, when people fell backwards, and that is when they came to arrest Jesus, and Judas was part of this. So they came to arrest Jesus, and he says, who, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. He, he <laughs> verbally stated, I am. I am. Name God. I am. And they fell backwards. That's the only time. And so that was, you know, I mean, when you think about it, that's more like a judgment, if anything, was it not? So, I mean, anybody, you know, flopping around like that, going, no, I won't have it. I will not have it. I will not have it. I will not have it. I remember one time I went to this church out of curiosity. It was curiosity. It was like in 2006, 2005, whatever, somewhere around there, when they had this laughing revival nonsense. And it was nonsense. And uh, my mom and I went. And I just wanted to see, and I was absolutely against it. I'm this not of God. I would not have it, did not agree with it. I was absolutely disgusted by it. I had people laughing, rolling in the floor, laughing. What was God laughing about? People dying and going to hell? No, no, no. The Holy Spirit wasn't laughing, and the Holy Spirit was not making them laugh. There's no humor. He will turn those that laughter into tears. Now, come on, for real. And uh, I went up there to get prayed for, right? Me and my mom together. The guy called us up there, and we went up there. And I'm praying in my mind, and I'm like, Father, if this is not from you, 
don't let me go down. <laughs> you know, I mean, because I was not sure about all that stuff, you know. And I don't know how many times that man literally tried to push me down in my forehead on the floor. My mom, too. Uh-uh. We didn't go down, and he was pretty upset with us. And we just turned around and walked away. And I spoke against that man. I did. And I actually had people, seasoned believers, come against me during that time. And, you know, they, they repeated this one verse a lot of people like to repeat. Touch to God's not anointed and do his prophets no harm. Well, you know, that was, you know, Saul and David there. And they wanted to kill Saul, remember? And King David was like, no, we can do that. You know, <laughs> I wasn't going to kill the man. You know, that's just foolish. Anyway, I'm just babbling. Probably because I'm tired. I'm listening to Nikki snore in the background like crazy. But I believe I understand a little bit more because, you know, if things were so blatantly obvious, um, faults, you know, it would not, you know, be almost possible for the very elect to be deceived. But things are not going to be that blatant. It's not, guys. It's not. I mean, I, there's so many. There's so many that I have witnessed myself since being back. I mean, when I returned to the Lord in 2017, he, he, he said, you don't turn that TV on and watch, watch it. No religious, nothing. Nothing. Stay away from it. And he said he would teach me himself. And he has. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and your grace. You know, thank him for his precious Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And, you know, I'm still learning a lot. I don't know much, honestly. I really seriously don't. But what I do know that I have to stand on, and I stand firm on the word. I stand firm on what he has revealed to me. But we talk about the deception and, and the lies, the false doctrine that has been indoctrinated in me. I've shed many tears being shown by the Lord that those things were lies and they're not true. I don't know. Anyway, brothers and sisters, that was a long shamil and I probably didn't have to tell you all this stuff, but I love you so very much. I do with all of my heart. I want you to stand firm, stand firm, stand firm on the word of God. Go to the word of God, please. Seek his face. Ask him for wisdom. He will give it to you. He will. You know, he's not going to hold it back. He's not going to hold it back. And, you know, ask him to fill you every single day. Fill me full of your precious Holy Spirit. Give me a refreshing, fill, you know, filling. Fill me. Because, you know, what? he is our teacher. He is. He wrote the book. My goodness, it was under the inspiration of him. And the men's just penned it. You know, guys, I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want to be deceived. I, you know, I pray and I ask the Father, please don't let me be deceived. Whether it's self-deception or religious deception or worldly deception, Father, please don't let me be deceived. Please, I want to know the truth, even when it hurts. And it does, you know, it's like a devil-edged sword, is it not? Think about it. It's going to cut going in. It's going to cut going out. And it's going to hurt. But you know what? <laughs> he knows how to wield that sword, does he not? And he can heal. He can heal with it too. Okay, brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on Jesus. Your nose in the book, which is the word of God.
God. And embed the word of God upon the tablets of your hearts so you will not sin against God or be deceived. Take everything to him in prayer. Don't take anybody's word for it, brothers and sisters. You simply cannot these days. I love you.